Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 22 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And I'll tell you what, Jacob, one theme that could very easily become a commonly recurring theme on this show is, man, Florida sounds like a great place to be right about now. Oh, it's fantastic. I visited there back in February, I believe. And I got to tell you, whenever you cross the state line to Florida, I mean, Georgia is a great state, but when you cross into Florida... It really does feel like you're back in the, the 90s, like the golden era of our lifetime in this country. It's a great, it's a great state to live in. 90s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I technically I can't say I've been there. I'm told I think you actually informed me the other day that airports do not count. I have stopped in the airport in Miami once for about a two hour layover. I had a nice lunch at a restaurant there when I was flying back home for, I think, Christmas last year. Uh, but I have not been outside of the airport. I have not yet set foot in the golden shining crown jewel of the united states right about now a friend of mine the other day actually referred to florida as america's constantinople which at this point i i hope i hope for the sake of history that turns out a little bit differently you know it does not suffer the same fate as that <laughs> glorious glorious city that fell far too soon but the best way to describe it is whenever you get out it's just like the people are just chill like people are oh, relaxed yeah. they just there's they don't you know, this kind of they're just kind of enjoying life. It's kind of it's not like this enjoying area. life on the beach, surfing. You know, they've always been chill people down in Florida. So now they're they're awesome politically and they're still chill people. But a huge part of that, of course, is due in part to their governor, Ron DeSantis, who once again has come through in a really big way. We're going to talk about how he's cracking down on big tech censorship with a very good new bill that he just signed into law. We are going to talk about, of course, the latest breakdowns in race relations in the United States on today, which uh, as of the date of this recording, it is May 25th, 2021, one year after George Floyd died of an accidental fatal overdose of fentanyl while in police custody, which some people seem to think meant that he was murdered by the police, but I digress. And we are going to talk about how the left's narrative of this multicultural utopia really just isn't holding up in the slightest and how, if anything, there are a lot of conflicts going on between non-white groups. Certainly the, the myth of stop Asian hate, which the numbers overwhelmingly show hate crimes against Asians are committed by African-Americans, not by white Americans. We are going to be talking about a lot and once again, just completely demolishing the left's narrative. So to start, the latest great victory from Ron DeSantis. He signed a bill on Monday Cracking down on big tech censorship, I once again got to write an article for this at American Greatness. This bill does two big things in particular. First, it allows Floridians, obviously it applies only to Florida, it's a state law. It allows Floridians who have been banned by big tech companies to sue if they have been banned, to sue over being silenced over their First Amendment rights being suppressed by these companies, which they are. The second one is it applies specifically to political candidates and says that any social media company that bans a candidate for political office in Florida will face daily fines until and unless they revoke that ban. For candidates for local offices, non-statewide offices, the fine is $25,000 per day. For candidates for statewide office, it's $250,000 per day. So this could apply equally well to two very prominent cases, of course, related to Florida. One, of course, being President Trump, who lives in Florida now. He is officially a Florida man who, of course, many people seem to think he will and hope he will run for president again, which technically is a statewide race because, you know, the presidential election in Florida. So that every day that he is banned on Twitter and banned on Facebook and the rest, that'd be a quarter of a million dollars for those companies every day that he is banned. 
And for non-statewide candidates, Laura Loomer being a prominent example. She has been banned by just about every social media, mainstream social media company you can think of. And she ran for Congress. And she was the Republican nominee for Florida's 21st congressional district against incumbent Democrat Lois Frankel. Uh, she lost because that is a heavily blue seat. But she says she is running again in 2022. So certainly up to the primary. And if she becomes the nominee again, that would be an example of that fine being implemented there in regards to her candidacy. This obviously is setting up a showdown at the Supreme Court. This is going to be taken to the Supreme Court most likely because, of course, you know, federal law, Section 230, technically makes companies exempt from this. So that is could potentially be a chance for the Supreme Court to revisit Section 230 that way if Congress won't do it. So very, very good move by Governor DeSantis, the, the latest in a long line. However, 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 we must call out the times that they mess up. And there was a bit of a fluke here with DeSantis promoting this bill. He tweeted from his account at Ron DeSantis FL uh, in support of his anti-big tech efforts. Not this bill specifically. He included a link to donate to his WinRed page, you know, his fundraising page. And he said, quote, Big tech deplatformed the president of the United States, but let Ayatollah Khomeini talk about killing Jews. This is wrong. That's why we are protecting Floridians and fighting back against censorship. There was a bit of a problem. Oh, there were two big problems here. First off, let's talk about the substance of this. You know, Jacob, we posted about this on Gab the other day. First off, of all the reasons you could point out that you're cracking down on big tech, this has got to be one of the worst ones, right? Because, yes, you can mention President Trump's ban in the silencing of conservatives here in America, right here, domestically, in our own borders. Why do we need to bring up the fact that the Ayatollah of Iran still has an account? Who cares about that, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have so many examples in this country of people who have advocated violence against fellow Americans. Um, they've even gone so far as to advocate violence against this country. So, yeah, I don't – the Ayatollah, should he be on Twitter? Uh, probably not, but I, I don't really care. I care about these Americans who are advocating for the destruction of this country. They're a lot more clear and present danger to our people than the Ayatollah. Exactly. And there are certainly greater dangers to our country than an Ayatollah who died a few decades ago. <laughs> if you read his tweet, and we have we posted the screenshot on Gab at the right take, he said Ayatollah Khomeini, K-H-O-M-E-I-N-I. That's referencing Ruhollah Khomeini, the first supreme leader, that's his title, and first Ayatollah of Iran after the Islamic Revolution that took place there in the 70s, who died in 1989. <laughs> Long before Twitter existed, he was succeeded by the second supreme leader, second Ayatollah, Ali Khamenei. It's, it's spelled differently. It looks like it could possibly be pronounced the same, but it's spelled K-H-A-M-E-N-E-I. So we posted about this, and we actually had uh, this one idiot on our Gab account yelling at us in the comments, like telling us, who cares about spelling, you grammar Nazis? There's a simple misspelling. And then there's getting a leader's name entirely wrong. This would be like if Joe Biden referred to Kim Jong-un as Kim Jong-il. Like, they're, they're two completely different people. And one, in that case, too, one is dead and one is alive. This is such an easy mistake. And again, an avoidable mistake because you didn't need to mention Iran to talk about big tech censorship. That's one of the last things you should mention. So this was an easily avoidable mistake by Governor DeSantis. It, and it only helps the left because it makes us look dumb. It makes him look dumb, especially considering he is considered a front runner for 2024 and as a leader in the post-Trump Republican Party. All right, so away from the good news and to some very bad news. So one year ago, the video went viral of George Floyd being arrested for being high, for under the influence of drugs, and being unruly in public, and for trying to buy groceries with a fake $20 bill. He was arrested and restrained, 
And unfortunately, he had taken three times the lethal dose of fentanyl prior to him being arrested. And he died in police custody, which is sad. But people accused the police officer who arrested him, Derek Chauvin, of murder. And of course, earlier this year, he was convicted on all three charges purely out of intimidation of the mob, which basically threatened to burn America down all over again if he was acquitted. So one year later, we have a new president, of course, in office. Thanks, voter fraud. And uh, this when I saw this story, I just I actually had to take a moment. This is where we are right now. A friend of ours said it very well. This is how you know you are living in a conquered nation. One year after the accidental fentanyl overdose death of George Floyd, this new president and this new administration and his State Department specifically wants to let the whole world know that we are kneeling at the altar of St. George Floydius Maximus. <laughs> Jacob, what is happening at our embassies overseas? So there was a, an unclassified action request sent out from our wonderful Secretary of State. Uh, what is his name again? I, Anthony I Blinken. Anthony Blinken. Yeah. Uh, he, Blinken. He's as forgettable as you would think. You're right, right. And the subject line is commemorating George Floyd, diplomatic engagement and use of Black Lives Matter, language and material. It says, summary. May 25th marks one year since the brutal murder of George Floyd by police officers in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Last False. year, the horrific video of Mr. Floyd's final nine minutes and 29 seconds went viral and spurred Black Lives Matter protests worldwide. Wait, and nine minutes, 29 seconds? I thought it was eight minutes, 46 seconds. They can't even get their own timelines right anymore. I mean, I mean, what, they can always, they can, it'll be 10 minutes next year. You watch it. It'll just, by, I mean, by the, the numbers 20, will increase over time. Increase. Yeah, they'll, they'll by 2040, if they're still in charge of this country, it'll be 20 minutes. 20 minutes, Mr. Floyd was it'll, on It'll the be the length of a feature film, you know, an entire movie of George Floyd being arrested because he was high. <laughs> right. But since it spurred the Black Lives Matter protests worldwide in response to his senseless killing and to demand an end to systemic racism and police brutality. One year later, many in the international community will honor Mr. Floyd and acknowledge the long journey nations face to advance racial justice. Leading up to May 25th, the department has issued guidance on the use of Black Lives Matter language, banners, and flags. So essentially, he just and he goes on and it tells the embassies that if they want to fly the Black Lives Matter flag, they are perfectly allowed to do so and in fact encouraged to do so. Now, it's not it's not a demand. They don't have to if they don't want to. But do you really want to be the ambassador who decided not to fly the BLM flag over your embassy on the anniversary, the first anniversary of George Floyd's murder? So Which, then you subsequently get found out by the mob on Twitter and you get canceled and sent back home to America where the mob can burn your house down. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I, I would want to be that guy who's like, nope, we're not flying the BLM flag. Of course, I would if I were in that position. But then well, so again, would I, but. I wouldn't be in. There's no way that I would be in that position. But uh, anyway, so he, you know, as, as the first anniversary of George Floyd's untimely death, we're going to have the U.S. embassies flying the BLM flag. And, of course, I saw a picture of our embassy. I believe it was in South Korea or it might have been uh, – no, Spain. Our embassy in Spain has got a big Black Lives Matter banner on the side of the U.S. embassy. Call me crazy, but I'm pretty sure there's only one flag we're supposed to be flying at our embassies. I, I, I may have read that somewhere. Forgive me. Yeah, it should be, it should be the flag that represents all of Americans, the entire nation, not a flag that is supported by less than half of the country. And if you actually explain what BLM stands for and explained what its founders believe in to every American, if you actually sat down every single American and explained to them what the BLM movement stands for, that number would shrink to under 20 percent. And the, the reality is that you know, most Americans don't support this stuff. They don't support this thing. But then again, if you go back to episode number 20, when we talked about the roots of the deep state, how under Harry Truman, our foreign policy essentially became – 
a crusade to conquer countries that did not have sufficient that were not sufficiently democratic our foreign policy became the it, it entered into the domain of a foreign policy elite and moved away from the democratic sphere so the american voter hasn't really had much control over his nation's foreign policy since harry truman so in this sense these foreign policy elites they figure you know we're, we're doing what our professors at universities believe in we're doing what we were trained to do by spreading anti-racism by spread anti-colonialism and essentially this is what this is this is something that people need to understand america isn't spreading socialism under the biden administration we are spreading anti-colonialism in other words anti-western culture we have sided with the radicals with the wet, with the weather underground we have sided with all the radical communists of the 1960s who were communist not necessarily because they were wedded to marxist economics although they were they were Marxist because they were anti-colonialist. So this document goes on. This, this directive goes – it continues. Another – one of the headlines is a national security priority, racial equity – not equality, equity. Racial equity – That's the new so, buzzword. Correct, and it doesn't mean the same thing as equality. Equity means opportunity uh, – equal, equal outcome. Equal outcome. Exactly. Equality means equality of opportunity. Equity is equal outcome. And if you remember uh, the uh, right before the election, Kamala Harris put out a video in which she described the differences between equality and equity, and she plugged equity. So this is a national security priority, racial equity and support for undeserved communities. So some of the bullet points, it says the, the department's policy efforts with respect to advancing racial equity as part of supporting our national security interests are as follows. Partnering with like-minded nations and civil society stakeholders to counter disinformation, propaganda, and the concerted malign influence, uh, influence of state and non-state actors, which sow racial discord among communities undermining democratic norms. Promoting democratic principles, fighting corruption, increasing access to justice through reform efforts, and raising awareness of the prevalence and effect of discrimination against members of racial, ethnic, and undeserved, underserved communities. So they're essentially taking their view of race relations in America, and they're assuming that's the way it is in every country around the world. So our State Department is now instructing our American embassies to essentially stir up racial and ethnic division in the countries that they're supposed to be serving and representing America's interests. Another one is combating violence and discrimination against members of racial, ethnic, and, under, and other underserved communities, building coalitions of like-minded nations and engaging in international organizations in the fight against systemic racism. So, so apparently systemic racism isn't confined to the United States now. And discrimination to include swift and meaningful responses to human rights abuses and violations of racial, ethnic, and other underserved and mainstream racial equity issues throughout the multilateral system. The problem Ex with that, well, the part about the human rights abuses, I just got to point this out. Their idea of human rights abuses is very different from the standard definition. You know, human rights abuses to them is not just, you know, little children in Africa being enlisted into Kony's child army or whatever. This is human rights abuses to them is a black person being held accountable for committing a crime. Yes. Correct. Like, so it's just it's absolutely insane. And yeah, like you said, the idea that they're trying to stoke racial tensions in other countries in a way, that's almost genius because if you want to keep other countries weak, you stoke up tensions inside the country and keep them divided amongst themselves. Correct. Divide and conquer. So if in the right hands, that, that would be a great Machiavellian tool for remaining the world power. But that, that actually reminds me, I guarantee you there is one country, at least one country that is not going to buy into any of this racial justice nonsense for a second. 
And that's the same country that got us into this current mess with this uh, virus that's been going around. China, China. Exactly. Of course, yeah. Yeah, I'll get, yeah the, the State Department, the U.S. State Department isn't going to be doing any of this regarding the Uyghurs. I mean, we saw how Secretary of State Blinken was completely humiliated by that foreign delegation from China in Alaska on our own soil. They he literally was, used our talk, their left-wing talking points against them. Right, because Blinken is now he, – he's – they're ad- admitting that the United States, at least they're claiming that the United States has a problem with systemic racism. But now they're going to go fight systemic racism abroad. And China's like, look, you, you haven't actually come to the conclusion yet that systemic racism is solved in your country, and you're going to talk to us about how we're handling our Uyghur problem? It's, like, it's brilliant on their part. I give the Chinese credit. That's really smart. Yeah, that exactly. Is, that was the perfect thing to do. And see, Blinken can't say, well, we solved that by getting rid of Donald Trump. Now we have an administration <laughs> that recognizes systemic racism. He can't say that because nope. as soon as he does, then all uh, Biden's black supporters are going to be up in arms and say, what are you talking about? We haven't solved systemic racism. It's still around. But uh, the last two are expanding efforts to ensure regular U.S. federal government engagement with foreign government, citizens, civil society, and the private sector promotes respect for the human rights of members of racial, ethnic, and other underserved communities. So now if we're engaging in private companies abroad, then those private companies need to be woke. And also empowering local movements to advance the human rights of members of racial, ethnic, and other underserved communities through efforts that strengthen the capacity of civil society. And this is what George Soros has been doing ever since the 90s. He's been empowering civil society. This is, this is the buzzword they used, empowering civil society. What these are are NGOs who act as basically our, imperi- our imperial foot soldiers in foreign countries. These are NGOs that are often funded internationally. Most of their funds come from international actors. Many of their funds come from the United States, the USAID, which is basically the foreign aid arm of the State Department, and the Open Societies Foundations. So Soros has finally, at last, through the Biden administration, he has conquered our State Department. Soros, he was really tight with the Clinton administration. In fact, the Clinton, Bill Clinton's ambassador to the Soviet, the former Soviet Union, to the to Russia, he claimed that the that America's foreign policy and Soros's foreign policy was one and the same. Well, Soros didn't really get along very well with the Obama administration. In fact, he felt that he had helped Obama get elected, and he was felt offended that Obama snubbed him because Obama wouldn't meet with. Under Biden, Soros is getting everything he could have ever dreamed of. He's the Biden administration is essentially using the the might and power of the American empire to further the Soros agenda by creating open societies, basically using the point of a gun, the United States arsenal, to enforce open societies abroad, and plus using our economic might to force these countries into having open societies. So basically what you're telling me is that Obama was a better president just all around, like a better person for America than Biden or even Clinton? He was more independent-minded than Biden and Clinton, whereas Biden and Clinton are decades-long engulfed in this foreign policy agenda and spreading open societies throughout the world, whereas Obama was less than a one-term senator. He had more – he was more independent-minded. Biden – recognizes that and embraces it. And this is why he appoints somebody like Anthony Blinken to be a secretary of state and why he's using American taxpayer dollars to force wokeness on the rest of the world. Okay, so he gives a background of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is, of course, everything you would expect if somebody in the Black Lives Matter movement wrote it up. The truth about, about the truth about Black Lives Matter, as told by Black Lives Matter. Exactly. It mentions how it started in 2013, 2014 in response to high-profile killings of black Americans and especially the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the killing of Trayvon Martin. 
It says the movement appears to have begun organically on social media. Yeah, purely organic. Oh, yeah, totally. 100% it, it wasn't, natural. It wasn't planned by three lesbian Maoists at all. It was just— With Soros' money, yeah. Right. It was just purely organic. It says the phrase Black Lives Matter then became a rallying cry for protesters and organizations seeking to raise awareness of and respond to issues associated with racism in the United States. And so he's got a, another uh, talks about how uh, gives them guidance on how to use Black Lives Matter in diplomatic engagements and uh, talks about and he says the department supports the use of the term Black Lives Matter in messaging content, speeches and other diplomatic engagements with foreign audiences to advance racial equity and access to justice on May 25th and beyond. It supports the participation in Black Lives Matter related activities, gives guidance on how to display banners uh, talking about Black Lives Matter. But of course, he mentions Black, the BLM movement and support for it cannot be used in support of a political candidate or a political party. But Repu the Republican Party has re fully rejected the Black Lives Matter movement. It is only supported by one of the two major parties in the U.S. So that would be like saying you can display NRA paraphernalia on the embassy, but don't make it partisan. Well, I mean, at this point, the NRA is partisan. There are no – there are very few – actually, there are no Democratic candidates that are on a national stage that are, I don't believe there's a single Democratic congressman who has the endorsement of the NRA at this point. Okay, but this gets better. He says posts are strongly encouraged about social media posts are strongly encouraged to make full use of the department and interagency tools and resources to promote policy objectives to advance racial equity and support for underserved communities throughout the year, including with a particular focus on May 25th. So this is going to be this is going to be a holiday for the Democratic Party going forward. May 25th. This is going to be like the new MLK Day. You know, people. The time has passed. It's been over half a century. People are um, MLK's memory is slowly starting to fade from people's memory as that generation starts to fade as well. So now they need something new. So May 25th is going to be the new holiday they're going to try to push. So uh, including a particular focus on May 25th and during June to commemorate Juneteenth and lesser known racially motivated attacks such as the Tulsa Race Massacre, the 100th anniversary of which will take place on May 31st through June 1st, 2021. So they're going to turn this May 25th. That was the day they were they were basically honoring George Floyd. Now on May 31st and June 1st, they're going to talk about this obscure race riot that most people had never even heard of before last year in Tulsa, which was a tiny, tiny city at that time in which there were a few hundred people who got killed, both white and black people who got killed because whites outnumbered blacks. They won. They destroyed their neighborhood. But this was 100 years ago. So they're going to resurrect a race riot that caused racial tension in Oklahoma in a small city over you know, a complete century ago to try to stir up racial animosity today. Well, and you know what, why they're doing that? Obviously, they're doing that because that kind of an event where, you know, black Americans would get massacred by a white mob for no reason other than that they were black. That fits their idea of what America is right now. They don't want to talk about MLK because, and this is said a lot, he's quoted very, very often. He quoted the United States Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. He said, we should all be equal. We should judge each other not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. We should have the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners sitting at, this ta at the same table of brotherhood. He preached unity. And he was hated by Malcolm X and others in his day. And I saw this in college, in college back when I was in 2013 through 2017. There were students overwhelmingly who said, oh, yeah, MLK didn't get it. He tried to pander too much to the white people. He, he, he didn't get it. We need more Malcolm X's, less MLK's. In, in a few more years, decades, give or take, they'll be tearing down MLK statues, saying black lives didn't matter to him. Oh, yeah, he'll be – they'll call him an Uncle Tom. You know, he wasn't yeah, – he, he wasn't – he actually didn't stand up for their people. But the thing is, what, what we're seeing is they're taking this Tulsa race massacre and they're 
commemorating it, bringing it, basically reaching back in the history books and pulling an obscure race riot and commemorating it. Well, there were about 2,500 lynchings of black people, I believe. Well, I mean, obviously there aren't 2,500 days of the year, but that means they could pull from all these different events that happened 110, 120, 130 years ago. We're talking about, you know, these people's great-grandchildren are already dead who were alive back then. And they're going to try to commemorate this over and over again so that way they can keep all this fresh on black people's memories and continue to use it to stir up racial division because this is what they do every single election. I saw a graph that showed racial tension and riots, and it always happens just a few months right before elections. We saw this in 2012. We saw this in 2014. We saw this in 2016. We saw this in 2020. So every single election year, so they're going to always grab fresh material to try to stir up racial division. And now we see that they're through this directive, they're going to try to export that abroad. And essentially what this is, is this is a way for the ruling elitist class in this country to maintain their grip on power. If they can keep common, everyday, average working people at each other's throats over things that happened long before their grandparents and even their great-grandparents were born, they can continue to rule this country as the rulers of the modern globalist empire. But it's necessary for average everyday Americans to understand what our State Department is doing because that's the only way that average voters are ever going to take our foreign policy back. A lot of people are so focused on domestic issues, they're not paying any attention to what our State Department is doing. But we've got to remember, we're funding this stuff. These embassies are, are representing us abroad. And as such, they should represent all of Americans and they should not raise any flag that does not represent all of Americans. And they should not put forth any messaging that does not represent all Americans, or at least the overwhelming majority of Americans, not what the State Department thinks that the overwhelming majority of Americans should believe about these issues. So speaking of racial tensions within the country, uh, how is that going, by the way? We've, we've, we hear a lot about, of course, the the recent campaign, which I don't even actually hear about it too much anymore, kind of already died down, the whole Stop Asian Hate meme, which claims that there's just random white people going out and murdering Asians because they're Asians, because I guess Asians are the new target now, even though all the studies and the most infamous examples overwhelmingly show that these are being committed primarily by African Americans. More recently, of course, we hinted at it in the last episode, there's been a lot of talk about what happened between Israel and the Palestinians over the last couple of weeks. A bit of a ceasefire seems to have been negotiated there thanks to Egypt. But during that time period, there was a spike in attacks against Jews here in America, anti-Semitic incidents in New York and Los Angeles and others. And what does all of this mean? What exactly is going on with this current status of the as the left is now back in power and they're pushing towards this multicultural utopia? How is that a utopia playing out so far, Jacob? So one of the things that was interesting is there the attacks on Asian Americans were few and far between, even when you consider when you consider the population yeah. of the United States, you would have an attack like two or three attacks per week. But you got to remember, we're a nation of 320 million people. You've got I mean, every day you've got literally dozens of people murdered in Chicago. So it, it's not like it's not like these it's not like Asian Americans weren't able to walk down the street in any town, any city in America without people just randomly jumping out of their cars and beating them on sight. Even during the coronavirus, you know, with all the frustration towards China, which is perfectly justified, people weren't going around and killing Asians. You know, again, the left claims that Trump calling it the Chinese virus, that's that's racism, that's a microaggression. But nobody bought that. And even Asian Americans didn't really care much for it. They were like, yeah, we don't care. They voted for Trump by bigger numbers in 2020 than they did in 2016. So then they had to turn around and with that one spa shooting in Atlanta, they had to say, oh, this is proof. This is the Dylan Roof for Asian Americans. This is the proof that Asians are being shot up and murdered every single day. But it, it just doesn't hold 
water at but all. But even before that shooting, this started even in January, right after – because the thing is, after they got through bashing the Trump supporters who stormed the Capitol, that kind of got old after a little bit. After, you know, People were like, yeah, they were outraged by it. But after two weeks, the news cycle moves on. People move on with their lives. They're not going to stay outraged at something for really more than two or three weeks at most. So the news media needed something else. The, the, corporate, the corporate elites needed something else to rile up people. So they came up with the the Asian the, all the stop Asian hate stuff because there were few, several attacks in major cities, mostly by black men, and so they started putting these stories out into the mainstream media. They started getting a lot of coverage. Whereas ordinarily, stuff like this that happens all the time in these cities, they would get covered on the local news. One or two national outlets might pick it up if they were if you know if the if the family members were lucky, they might get the, that kind of exposure. But ordinarily, only the local news would cover this stuff. So national outlets started picking it up. Social media companies started putting this in front of people and pushing it, and you had all of these activists who are funded by people like George Soros who started pushing this stuff. They also get a lot of government grants. They started pushing this stuff and started the, the Stop Asian Hate campaign. The first, like, really, what is widely considered to be the first incident that really started this was the murder of Wicha Ratanapakti in San Francisco. He was a Thai American. He's an 84-year-old Thai American man who was attacked by a 19-year-old black man named Antoine Watson, who just ran up and shoved him violently to the sidewalk and beat him while he was lying on the sidewalk and then ran away. And he was later arrested, of course. Uh, unfortunately, the victim died of his injuries. And that that right there kind of sparked right off the bat because the surveillance camera footage, there was CCTV footage of the attack showing very clearly, yeah, this is a black guy running up and hitting this Asian man. This is not, you know, some, some skinhead, some white supremacist. And even you could tell that the... The leftist officials there were not happy with this. Uh, Chesa Bowden, the district attorney of San Francisco, infamously, he referred to Watson's conduct as, quote, some sort of temper tantrum, which obviously led to a lot of outrage from the family of the deceased. And this was actually something really funny. I did not notice this until just the other day. There was an article written for the website Mike, M-I-C, in February. The, the murder happened on January 28th, 2021. This article was written February 11th, 2021, and specifically addressing that incident and others. It was written by a woman named Melissa Pandika. I'm going to assume she's Asian from that last name. Otherwise, she would not be qualified to talk about this. But this headline, this headline, this title is just priceless. Quote, I want justice for anti-Asian violence, but not at the expense of black people. <laughs> so let me get this straight. So when you have a black person who murders an Asian American man, like this case, or for example, the, uh, the murder of Muhammad Anwar, the Pakistani American, another older man who was an Uber Eats driver who was carjacked in the Navy Yard neighborhood of Southeast Washington, D.C. by two black girls, one age 13 and the other age 15. They murdered him pretty brutally crashing his car. When it's, when it's a black perpetrator, not even a suspect, these are little perpetrators that are caught on camera. You don't want to address it. You basically, your solution is what? Let them go? But then you got to think about, doesn't that put Asians in a tough spot? It's like, oh, if we get murdered by a black person, you know, kind of like the LA riots all over again, well, this time now they just get a free pass. Have to, yeah, they have to defend themselves from people who probably would go out and just, you know, these commit these crimes anyway, just career criminals, people who have violent histories who are just kind of looking to pick a fight in general, not even because of some racial motivation. Now they have to worry about that because journalists like this, again, presumably speaking on behalf of Asians, is like, oh, we, we got to remember Black Lives Matter. You know, we, we can't you – know, turning on them. She actually says at one point in the article, this is priceless. <clears throat> she says, quote, I'm hurting and I want justice too. 
but not from a white supremacist policing system that disproportionately targets and kills black Americans. <laughs> we should absolutely hold people accountable, but we shouldn't do so at the cost of black lives or the benefit of white supremacy, which is invested in turning black and Asian Americans against each other, end quote. The, the the absolute mental gymnastics they have to pull through, these oppression Olympics, to back themselves into, into such a corner, it's hilarious because they do have themselves in a corner. They really can't get out of this. It's like your choices are either hold someone accountable who is black and force them to face the music and go through the judicial system because how else are they going to pay for their crimes or you let them go. But then the families of these Asian men who are being murdered they get no justice. Like, and they have no answers. She doesn't even offer any answers whatsoever. She just deflects to, ooh, white people bad. So this is proof that even if they get their racial, the multicultural utopia tomorrow, it ain't going to sustain itself because sooner or later, this stuff, this cannot last. This is definitely not sustainable. But nobody's driving around and just seeing, hey, look, there's uh, an Asian couple. Let's jump out and beat them up. Or is anybody here of Asian descent so we can attack you? But, People are doing that to Jews. People in the past two weeks, or back actually a little over two weeks, like the past 18 days, the Washington Post documented 26 instances of anti-Semitic attacks. Many of these attacks came not typically, typically just like throwing a rock through a synagogue window. They were literally caravans of Palestinian youths in cars driving through the downtown areas of cities, stopping people at random who look Jewish and attacking them. Stopping people and asking them if they're Jewish and attacking. Like there's a member of the New York Red Bulls who was stopped on the sidewalk by a bunch of men and they asked him if he was Jewish. And he said, no, he's like, I think he's an Italian-American. He said, no, I'm not. And then they said, oh, okay, you better be glad you're not. And as he's walking around, he started turning around and said, well, what if I was? And they came up and said, we would kill you right here and now. Uh, there was a group and this was in Los Angeles. There were a bunch of people just sitting in an outdoor restaurant and a bunch of cars pulled up. They got out and they yelled, hey, is anybody here Jewish? And a couple of them said, yes, we're Jewish. And they immediately attacked them. And so a big brawl broke out right there on the streets of Los Angeles. New York City, you had massive riots and brawls a couple of, I think it was just this past weekend, between Jews and Palestinians. In Miami, there was a father and I believe it was his daughter. In Bal Harbor, Florida, Eric Organ was with his family. He's a Jewish man from New York. He was just walking with his family vacationing when four men in an SUV started yelling anti-Semitic comments. So he, he was wearing a Yarmuluk. I'm not too up on my... Yarmulke. Ya, that's how you pronounce it. Yarmulke. The, the, the hat on their head, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yarmulke. Yarmulke. He was wearing that, and the men shouted, free Palestine and die Jew. And then they also threatened to rape his wife and daughter. And then to top things off, they threw garbage at him. So they probably would have attacked him, except there was a good Samaritan there with a gun who pulled a gun on him and ran him off. But this kind of stuff... The reason why it's happening, of course, is because of the current conflict between Israel and Palestine. I'm sorry, uh, between Israel and Hamas. And so a lot of these Palestinians, these, these Arab immigrants, they're, they, they're going around attacking American Jews over the issue that's going on in the Middle East. Now, a, a lot of these American Jews, their ancestors did not come from the modern state of Israel. In fact, they don't have ancestors who ever lived in Israel. They've been here for 100 years, 120 years. Their ancestors came from Russia or wherever. They don't have anything to do with what's going on in Israel. Many of them couldn't care less about Israel. They're Americans. They're not involved in anything that's going on in Israel. But because they happen to be Jewish, these Palestinians are going around and attacking them at random, just assuming that if they're Jewish, they're going to support what's going on in Israel. 
And this this kind of stuff, this is kind of new territory in the modern sense. Like we had this kind of stuff happen during World War One. Whenever you had, you know, let's say, for instance, in Dayton, Ohio, there was a large Romanian and Hungarian population. And you had Hungarians and Romanians get in the streets and literally beating each other half to death in our country that we allowed them to come in over a war that's going on in Europe, stuff that doesn't have anything to do with Americans. You had these groups, these European groups, lobbying the U.S. government to join the war on their side. And even many times after we already joined the Allied cause, you had minorities within Austria-Hungary relentlessly lobbying the United States to give their ethnicity more rights after the war was over with. So they were immigrants to our country. We had allowed them to come to our country, but they were very clearly a lot more interested in what was going on in the country that they came from. They weren't too interested in what was good for the United States. They weren't interested in what was good for American citizens. They were still in love with the country they came from. It'd be kind of like if you had a, had a girl that broke up from her boyfriend and went and started dating somebody else. And she saw that her boyfriend was getting in an argument. And she started encouraging her new boyfriend to jump in a, this fight, this argument, and beat up the guy that her ex-boyfriend is in an argument with. Can you imagine her new boyfriend is like, wait a minute, wh why do you want me to risk my health and safety for your ex-boyfriend? He got himself into this argument with this other guy. I don't know either one of them. Why do you want me to go to bat for your ex-boyfriend? Like, if you care that much, why aren't you still with him? Why are you dating me? And this is kind of the issue we see with whether it was Romanians and Hungarians 100 years ago or Palestinians in this country today. I don't know. I mean, some of these might be American citizens. I'm, I'll guarantee you many of them are not. Many of them aren't even American citizens. They're over here causing problems, attacking American citizens who happen to be Jewish because of something that doesn't have anything to do with the United States. And even if it did have something to do with the United States government, these individual Jewish families who are just eating, trying to enjoy a meal with their family or walking on the beach in Miami or wherever, they don't have anything to do with that. They're just citizens. I mean, like what I talked about with uh, Blinken's directive about Black Lives Matter. I mean, we're American citizens. We pay tax, pay, tax dollars. So technically we fund that, but we don't have any say so in that. So for someone to come and attack us for us supporting Black Lives Matter, it's like, well, we don't. We don't support that. Like that's that's our government. That's not us. Like we, we, you know, we're just one vote. We're one person. We can't we can't necessarily uh, we can't control everything our government does. Now, what's interesting about these attacks is, like I mentioned before, as soon as all these attacks on Asian Americans started taking place, like at random, just random attacks, many times by mentally deranged thugs, social media erupted with the same kind of vigor in favor of the Stop Asian Hate campaign that they erupted with the Black Lives Matter thing. In fact, they were trying to do a repeat in the spring of 2021 for Asian Americans, what they did for black Americans. They were trying to get Asian Americans in the streets. They were trying to rile up Asian Americans to the same extent that black Americans got riled up after the George Floyd death. It didn't work, though, because... The narrative, as you mentioned, the narrative didn't just didn't tie in. I mean, they tried to do a march against white supremacy after a black man attacked an elderly Asian man in San Francisco, and it was widely mocked on social media. It's like, what, what are y'all doing? Yeah, that was the case I mentioned before of Awicha Ratana Pakti, who uh, literally they had posters like depicting a stylized mural type painting of his face that literally said, march against white supremacy. And I'm like, this is the guy who was literally murdered by a black man. Yeah, now Project Veritas... One of their recent stings was against a CNN a technical director named Charlie Chester. 
And in the in the film uh, or in the in the hidden camera where he was having a date with a having a tender date who was actually an undercover Project Veritas operative, he even admitted that the news media at CNN had an agenda to promote Black Lives Matter by tying in Asian Americans to the fight against white supremacy. And he said, quote, I was trying to do some research on the Asian hate, like the people who are getting attacked and whatnot. A bunch of black men have been attacking Asians. It's like, what are you doing? Like, we're trying to help with the BLM. So let's like, what are you doing? <laughs> we're on your side. This is going against the narrative. Like, you're not supposed to be doing this because they're very open about the fact that they are trying to unite all of America's minorities, even people who don't necessarily consider themselves minorities. Like a lot of Asian Americans just want to be Americans. They don't want to be Asian Americans. They just want to be Americans, regular Americans. They don't see themselves as different or as the academics like to say the other. They consider themselves part of the majority. So, but the news media can't have that because if you have a cohesive, united America, you cannot push their agenda. You cannot push their social justice agenda, which makes it, which ensures that they become and remain the gatekeepers. Because if you have a united, cohesive nation, then you're going to they're not going to be able to stir up racial animosity and get people to show up to the polls out of hatred for the dwindling white majority. But yeah, I just found it interesting. It's like, what are you doing? We're trying to help you. We don't need you out there attacking your fellow minorities. It's just disgusting. Just absolutely disgusting. This media, this news media, the corporate news media in this country is allowed to do this. They should not, the corporate media should not be allowed to pit Americans against each other, to purposely pit Americans against each other. If we're being honest, that should be a crime. It like, should people be a in the media should literally be in jail for this because people are dying because of it. People literally died last year. Over two dozen Americans were murdered last year because of large part because of the media. Their businesses are being destroyed. They don't care because they're on a mission to have a social revolution. They are on a mission and their mission is to completely transform the United States of America. And one of the things I noticed as these Jewish, these anti-Jewish attacks were starting to be carried out, like it was all over social media. You were seeing Palestinians and Jews literally beat each other in the streets. You're seeing Jews being attacked unprovoked. And the media was largely silent. They weren't really covering it. Like I mentioned, whenever these attacks on Asian Americans were taking place, ordinarily, if the media didn't have an agenda, local news outlets would cover it. National media wouldn't really cover it. National media would focus on things like what the president is doing, what Congress is doing. They wouldn't focus on crimes in a country of 320 million people. But they did because of their agenda. But as these Jews were being attacked, the news media wasn't picking it up. It wasn't until after Fox News and a lot of outlets on the right who are very pro-Israel started picking this up that the mainstream media was like, hey, we, we better cover this because these right-wing outlets are starting to get ahead of the curve. And the reason is because it just doesn't fit into the agenda. How do you tie attacks by Arabs on Jews into their agenda? Because it doesn't fit. They're trying to unite black Americans and Asian Americans. And how do you do that whenever Arab Americans are attacking Jewish Americans? And what's interesting is the, the gentleman, Oregon, who was from New York on vacation in Florida, he said that he felt that Jewish people had not received the same level of support as other religious, racial, and ethnic groups that have been victimized. He said... Quote, who's out protecting us? Who's out speaking up for us? And the reality is no one, because the news media, this doesn't fit into the narrative that a bunch of white people are being brutalized by these Arabs just because they happen to be Jewish. Because right now they're trying to promote the Black Lives Matter movement. They're not trying to promote the Jewish Lives Matter movement. But what's interesting is Bernie Sanders 
<laughs> of all people, Bernie Sanders, he tried to make the connection. And this is like trying to force a, a round peg into a square hole. It just doesn't fit, but he's going to try to make it fit. He's going to he's going to get out there and try to try to make this fit any way he can. So he tried to draw a comparison between these attacks on Jews and other violence targeting minorities in the United States. Uh, hey, Eric, uh, you, you can speak Bernie better than I can. What did Bernie Sanders say? We have to combat the increase in hate crimes in this country against Asians, against African-Americans, against Latinos. We've got a serious problem of a nation which is being increasingly divided, being led by right-wing extremists in that direction. <laughs> right, what? What are you talking about, man? Right-wing? I was not aware it was a right-wing stance to oppose Israel. I mean, okay, yes, on the far right, sure, like the literal neo-Nazis, yeah, but I'm pretty sure these Palestinians... These Arab Americans. They're not right wing. They're definitely, they did not vote for Donald Trump <laughs> in 2020. I can guarantee you this. This is insane. And again, it needs to be said, needs to be reminded, Bernie Sanders himself is Jewish. And yet here he is completely deflecting, punting 100% on an issue involving his people, people of his race being beaten in the streets out of nowhere because of what race they are. And it's not because of right wingers, Bernie. This is so sad to me. I just got to go off on a tangent here. This is kind of sad with regards to Bernie Sanders. I wrote an article on this a while ago, and I was talking about or kind of hinting at how Bernie, you could tell Bernie really never bought into this race baiting crap. He never supported Black Lives Matter. He never wanted to make it about race. He is a genuine economic socialist. He is actually about socialism on an economic level. He talked about in 2016, immediately after the election, he infamously said, you know, I come from an area of white working class people and I am embarrassed that the Democratic Party no longer speaks to my people. Like he talked about the white working class. He's yeah, he identifies as white. That's the primarily. Right. But the bottom line is he doesn't he didn't want this race baiting stuff. He wanted, you know, that ad he that ad he famously did with uh, Simon and Garfunkel's song America was a montage of all Americans, a, a lot of white working class Americans, white farmers, and a few other, you know, Americans of color, but predominantly it was just, it was truly everyone that encompassed in that ad. He does not care for the race baiting stuff. That's why Black Lives Matter never supported him. They stormed his rallies. They went overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. He never bought into this. And I feel he and so many of the others who were against Biden and who's against Hillary and against the establishment Democratic Party, they have just been beaten so much into submission now that Biden is in charge and Pelosi and all of them are back in charge again, that they're just towing the line at this point. I feel Bernie, I don't think Bernie even genuinely believes this. He <laughs> is just towing the line, which is really sad because I respect it to a certain degree that he stuck with his convictions and believed what he believed in. He's a genuine socialist. I'll give him that much, which is more than can be said for say Elizabeth Warren, but he is just such a shell of his former self now, so, now that he knows he's never going to run for president again. So this is what this reminds me of. Imagine if Bernie is uh, a politician a hundred years ago. And he's running in the South and he's oh, trying to, God. He, he's trying to, he's trying his best to, to get votes. He's trailing trailing. And I guess he didn't have polls back in those days, but he, he's just not gaining traction. And a Klansman comes up to him and says, now, look, you got to understand right now, racial tensions are high. We need you to go out there and start bringing race into the conversation. People will vote for you <laughs> if you do that. So he's like, oh, okay. Oh, I forgot. I'm in Mississippi. That's what I've got to do right now. <laughs> so he gets out there. Let me tell you something. We need to get those. You know what? In their place, we need to put them back on the plantations. We don't need to make sure that no mm, can vote 
and we're going to, I'm telling you this, we're going to make this a country for the white race. And then they come, no, 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 you can't say that, not quite that far, you can't say it out loud. The respectable middle class won't vote for you if you say stuff like that. It, it just, it's not good optics. But this is what you said I've got to say. So this is kind of where we're at with Bernie Sanders. Like, he's in this in this position where he's got to toe the party line on the, the new, the ascendant minority who is going to become the majority, and he just doesn't know how to be subtle about it. Like, he's got to come out, every every little thing, he's got to tie it in to the agenda, which is, well, yes, it's bad that Jews are being attacked, but we've got to remember Latinos are being attacked. Like, where? Where are Latinos being attacked? Like, I don't know. Like, they haven't, what's interesting, they haven't started the Stop Latino Hate campaign. They're, I'm sure they would if they could, but they just, they can't. They can't find any examples. And let's not, we have to go further up the totem pole. We have to go to the very top. Like Senator Warren said, we have to think about black transgender women. Those are so oppressed. There are so many black transgender women who are murdered every day in America. It's just, it never stops. But the thing is, the, the, the problem with whenever the Democratic Party moves into this intersectional direction, which is basically, of course, it's being run by black intellectuals. The intersect, the whole intersectional movement does eventually have its goal as putting black Americans on the top and all these immigrant groups below them. It's and just aggressive affirmative action is all Correct, it is. correct. But whenever the Democratic Party moves in this direction, you've got people who are older, like Bernie Sanders, who aren't well-versed in the terminology. I'm sure they've sat him down and explained to him what he can say and what he can't say and how to speak the language. But you have people like him that they basically just say the quiet part out loud. Or, you know, like that CNN guy that was caught by Project Veritas, he would never say that if he didn't think it was in confidentiality. But it's something that everybody, they all know this is the agenda. You've got to make victims out of every non-Anglo-Saxon group in this country. Because if you have a whole bunch of communities that are being victimized, who's going to be target number one? Who's going to be culprit number one? It's going to be the native Anglo-Saxon white people whose ancestors founded the United States. And when they look around, they see that all the guns are pointed at them. They're just going to cow in submission. They're going to be compliant. It's like it's like Lieutenant Colonel Loheimer's book that we covered last week. He said the goal in Maoist China, whenever they captured POWs, American POWs, the goal was not to break their body. It was to break their spirit by making them compliant. And that is the goal. If you can make conservative white people compliant, if you can make them meek, if you can get them to admit guilt, and if you can get them to be scared of the ascendant majority, they will do and vote for whomever you want. And that's exactly the point that Dennis Prager made when he wrote this amazing article, American Greatness. I think it's one of the best articles he's ever written. He said that the left's hatred of white people is hatred of America, in which he himself, he did point out, yes, white people did build most of Western civilization and certainly built America. That doesn't, does not automatically mean white people are superior, and of course not. But the left can't stand that because they think every other group should have gotten a piece of the pie in the foundation of America. So what is the current tangible manifestation of their dislike of America and what's the thing they can punish the most at a societal level, at an institutional level, they can punish physically, it's white Americans because they see white Americans as representing the foundation of this country. And he was 100% right about that. And that is that is what they're going for here. So this, this actually presents a great opportunity for the right and the Republican Party in particular to highlight the problems with mass immigration. Because when you invite in a whole bunch of other people and other ethnicities into our country, they don't assimilate overnight. As soon as a person touches down on American soil, they don't immediately become an American. Even after they become an American citizen, you got to remember most of them are still are dual citizens. They still have loyalty to their country, the country of their birth. 
many times it's not till the third or fourth generation that people feel more American than they do the country that their ancestors came from. How many how many generations did it take Irish Americans to completely discard their Irish identity as far as their loyalty? At least six, give or take. I remember, you know, as I was researching the the part about Harry Truman and the in the roots of our deep state. I came across an interesting quote. James Burns, he was from South Carolina. He was FDR. Um, he was FDR's Secretary of State and then eventually became Harry Truman's Secretary of State when FDR died. James Burns was of Irish ancestry. Now, interestingly enough, he his identity was both Southern and Irish. And whenever they, whenever Churchill was trying to get the United States to join Britain and share the 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 atomic bomb with Britain, so you could have an Anglo world, an Anglo led world. James Burns told the Friendly Sons of St. Patrick on St. Patrick's Day, I believe this was 1946, he promised them that the United States would never join into an alliance with Great Britain, that we would never share our nuclear secrets with the United Kingdom. And why was this? Well, because the Irish at that time were still very much opposed to the UK because of the way that the English had treated the Irish. Well, that's a problem. When your Secretary of State is basically pulling on ancient prejudices that don't have anything to do with the United States, it's going to affect your foreign policy. And when we invite all these different groups of people into our country that are still holding on to their foreign loyalties, it, there's no other better way to explain why it's a national security threat to have mass migration. If you try to become a nation of immigrants, you will only become a nation of warring immigrants, and the United States will eventually crumble from within. So Josh Hawley, he's pretty good on immigration, both the illegal and unlike a lot of Republicans, he's actually pretty good on legal immigration and the fact that he wants to protect American workers. But he chose this opportunity. He used this as an opportunity to throw partisan shade, which is not really needed if you want to make a point on immigration. He said when you say things, uh, talking about how the Democrats are – claims that the Democrats are provoking these Palestinians to do this. He said when you say things like calling Benjamin Netanyahu an ethno-nationalist on the floor of the United States Congress, when you call Israel an apartheid state, when Democrat members of Congress have done on the floor of the United States Congress, that's incendiary rhetoric. And we've had almost 200 incidents of violence reported now against Jewish Americans. And basically, this is just the same thing that the Democrats were doing about Chinese, you know, uh, anti-Asian attacks, claiming that that the rhetoric that President Trump was using is driving these anti-Asian attacks. These Palestinians, they didn't they don't care what Democrats have to say about any of this stuff. They're, they're fighting over land. They don't care if someone called Benjamin Netanyahu an ethno-nationalist on the floor of the United States Congress. They don't watch C-SPAN. <laughs> That's the thing. These Palestinians aren't tuning into C-SPAN. They don't, they don't know what's being said in Congress. They don't care. Okay, They hate Israelis. They hate Jews. They want all of Israel for Palestine. So you know, this is just, unfortunately, a lot of Republicans, they get caught into the partisan trap. Rather than try to make an ideological point, they turn to straight partisanship. Uh, another thing I'd like to point out that really misses the boat is David French's piece the latest piece in the dispatch. And then when the does David French ever not miss the boat? Let's oh be honest. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Well, so for those of you that don't know, uh, many of you may know about the Weekly Standard, how Ahoy. it folded in 2018, and of course, all its writers and editors they were without a job, so they had to go somewhere. So those who were well positioned to move on with their lives and weren't just the the, the scrubs at the bottom, they moved on and founded the Dispatch, which is they kind of broke off into two groups. And one was uh, the Bulwark, which is. Uh, Bill Crystal's publication, and then the other was the Dispatch, which uh, I think is Jonah Goldberg's outfit. Right, right, and we will we shall get to Bill Crystal here shortly. But oh yeah, we'll, we'll let's, come to that. Let's absolute start, slime. Let's start with uh, with uh, Mr. French, um, <sighs> or is it Doctor French? I think you got a JD. So um, David French uh, wrote an article in uh, in his French press in the Dispatch and called "Can America Be America When Jews Are Beaten in the Streets." 
David French is a very obnoxious writer and thinker, but this particularly rubbed me the wrong way because this is one of the most obnoxious articles I've ever seen written by French. And the headline speaks for itself. And of course, throughout the throughout the article, he doesn't even mention the fact that immigration is a problem. So he opens up saying, "It happened again as war raged between Hamas and Israel over there in the Middle East. We reached, uh, we watched in horror as American Jews were beaten right here in American streets." He talks about how Thursday evening uh, there was a gang of men uh, who beat a Jewish man in Midtown Manhattan. Then there was another talking about what we mentioned in L.A. How the group of Palestinians attacked the Jewish diners, and then talking about synagogues that were that were uh, vandalized Salt Lake and Tucson, a few other places. But he ties it into earlier attacks in 2019 and 2020 when attackers beat Jewish Americans repeatedly. Uh, there was a mass shooting at a kosher deli in, New in Jersey City. I believe that was the one where it was like a, it was a black uh, Israelite that did that one. A few of the others were Palestinians who carried it out. Talks about how from its very start, European uh, Europeans who came to this country welcomed Jews in their midst, and Jew Jews have always had a home in the United States. So Washington, of course, visited, uh, after, I believe right after, yeah, right after he was inaugurated president, he visited a congregation in Rhode Island and gave uh, basically a goodwill uh, address, a, a goodwill address to the Jewish people in Rhode Island. He said, may the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree. This reference to Micah 4, 4, and there shall be none to make him afraid. May the father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths. And make us all in our several vocations useful here and in his own due time and way everlastingly happy. And French says it's hard to think of a greater contradiction of the principles of Micah 4.4 and of Washington's hope that Jews would enjoy the goodwill of America's inhabitants than brutal attacks on, in the streets inflicted solely on the basis of faith. Okay, these Palestinians who attacked these Jews did not attack them for their faith. They attacked them for their ethnicity. They didn't attack them because they uh, they worship. They didn't ask them, "Do you uh, are you a practicing? Uh, do you do you practice Judaism?" They asked them if they were Jews. They didn't ask them what they do or what they believe. They asked them who they were. They attacked them for who they were. And French, of course, completely misses the mark. He writes, "Indeed, street attacks represent a larger marker of exclusion and persecution." Okay, so this is a larger marker. This is more of a uh, a warning sign. This is like a warning bell in the night of what's happening in America as a whole. How many times have we seen that nightmare become a recent reality, and not just for Jews? Oh, okay, so it's not just Jews who are being persecuted in America, and America's increasingly inclusive, exclusive culture. He says it's still hard to wrap one's mind around the brutal murder of Ahmad Arbery a young black man who was chased through Georgia streets, cornered and killed. So he's tying in these attacks by Palestinians on Jews to Akmal Arbery, which happened, of course, right before the George Floyd death. He says, oh, he continues, we've seen Asian American men and women assaulted, unprovoked in broad daylight, including a notorious incident when a man beat an elderly Asian American woman as bystanders merely watched. He says, compounding the pain and injustice is a partisan fact. All too many people care more about crimes and hurt, more for victims when those crimes and those victims promote partisan interest and advance partisan narratives. He says, this much we know, however, if the founding pledge, uh, if the founding pledge of safety and freedom for Jewish citizens was a leading indicator that the American promise would be kept, then rising danger to Jewish citizens should be cause for profound alarm. Our nation's first president told believers in one of the world's most persecuted religions that they would have a home in this land. That founding promise helped define this nation. Breaking that promise would define us again, but in an entirely different way. America cannot be America when Jews are beaten in the streets. 
this is insanity. This this whole article is insanity. So he's claiming that America cannot be America if Ameri- if Jews are beaten in America's streets. But who's doing the beating? Who is attacking Jews in the streets? It's he's immigrants. He's basically kind of talking. He's dog whistling the idea that oh, that's it's native, right? It's white. It's that white Americans. That's white Americans. That it's some. It must be. It must be wasps who are hunting down these Jews in the streets and beating them. No, no, no. It's immigrants. It's immigrants who are beating these Jews in the streets. But in 2018, in National Review, David French argued that the reason for the rise of anti-Semitism in France was specifically because of immigration from the Middle East. He blamed immigration for it. So apparently, and this was in an article entitled Arguing Over Fictional Immigrants, and what he was arguing is that the left has this idealized version of immigrants that are essentially immigrants that don't exist. They view all immigrants as good, basically just seekers of peace who want to find a better life for themselves and their families. So where is this David French been? Why why is David French now the complete opposite of that David French from just a few years ago? Uh, that's a good question. I don't I don't really know, but he's, he mentions he says uh, he's talking about how the Jews in France are needing a safe haven. How there's been 50,000 of them who had immigrated between 20 2018 to Israel, which was more than double the number who had immigrated the in the 18 years before 2000. But he writes, there is a need for the great Western democracies to be compassionate and humane, but not every material limitation on immigration is xenophobic. It's just a fact that immigrants were arriving from regions that are awash in anti-Semitism. A recent ADL global survey shows that a stunning 74% of North African and Middle Eastern residents registered anti-Semitic attitudes. So immigration is the reason why France was turned anti-Semitic. It wasn't because of some sort of exclusive moral decline in France. So he's more than happy to throw shade at the United States, at his own country, for these anti-Semitic attacks in the streets. But apparently in, when it happens in France, well, so in other words, when Middle Easterners, when Muslims attack Jews in France, it's because of immigration. But when Muslims attack Jews in America, it's because of America. You know, actually, and maybe it, uh, maybe this does make sense that French would have such a double standard. His last name's French. He's obviously going to show for France. <laughs> Okay, that's that's a good one. I hadn't thought about that. That uh, that may be it. That may be the case. We see right through you, David French. He needs some. He needs a good dose of freedom fries. Yeah, freedom fries, freedom fries. Because that that's probably maybe that's the root of his hatred of America. He can't stand that America completely Americanized the single greatest export of his home country, which is French fries. <laughs> so, David French, who is supposed to be a conservative, is completely pushing the narrative. That the mainstream media, that social media, that all these leftist anti-colonial actors are promoting in the media and in, in Hollywood, on Instagram, that America is turning against minorities. And these anti-Jewish attacks that we're seeing in the streets isn't because of immigration. It's not because we've thrown our borders wide open to people from the Middle East. It's not because we haven't actually had the limitations on Islamic immigration that President Trump wanted and that most of his supporters wanted. It's because America is becoming more exclusive. It's because it must be because America is becoming anti-Semitic and America is not living up to the dream that George Washington had that everyone of every religion would be welcome in this country. And look, this again, this doesn't have anything to do with Jews religion. These attacks are not happening because of the way they worship or who they worship. These attacks are happening because of their ethnicity. These attacks are happening because of a war that's going on that we don't have any business being involved in. 
It's happening because we are importing people from that area of the world and they're bringing their ethnic prejudices and their civil wars and their hatreds with them when they arrive in this country. And they're essentially, we are essentially importing foreign wars to our streets. That's what's going on. If you want the anti-Semitic attacks to stop, because sure, yeah, there are people in this country who are Americans who just hate Jews because they hate Jews. But those people don't run people, Jews down the streets and beat them for being Jews. They don't show up to diners and ask them who here is Jewish and then immediately attack them like this. This is happening because we have an immigration problem. And people like David French, these so-called, these principled conservatives like David French, all they do is add to the problem. And there's a reason why they're adding to the problem. Because they don't view America as a nation. They view America as an idea. And we see this perfectly in Bill Kristol. Now, both David French and Bill Kristol are neoconservatives. Both David French and Bill Kristol were never Trumpers. Leading figures in the never Trump movement, honestly. Yes, and it's fair to say that both Bill Kristol and David French despise the direction that the American right is headed right now. And again, the reason isn't because necessarily because of tax rates or regulations or economics. The difference is about identity. We view America as our home because we were born here. They view America completely different. David French views America almost as a moral enterprise because he says America cannot be America when Jews are beaten in the streets. I'm sorry. The United States of America is still the United States of America, regardless of whether or not white people are beaten in the streets or whether or not Jews are beaten in the streets or whether or not black people are beaten in the streets. It's still the United States of America. It's still the country remains. Bill Kristol has an economic view of America. He doesn't view it as necessarily as a moral enterprise. He views it purely as an economic enterprise. Whatever's good for the GDP, basically. Yes, let's have a listen. Look, to be totally honest, if things are so bad, as you say, with the white working class, don't you want to get new Americans in who aren't going to be? I'm serious. If you can New Americans? <laughs> I mean, Dude, well, if you're a nation of immigrants, everyone around the world is an American. Everyone, you see a person in Bangladesh, they're a future American. They're a potential future American. Why not? That might as you might as well just say, oh, if you don't like your son, why not just get a new son? You know, why get new kids if, yeah. if your kids aren't working out for you? Exactly. Your, your, your son, your son's rebellious. Just kick him out and adopt another one. <laughs> Make a case that I'm. Mean, this is going on too long, and this is too crazy, probably. And I hope this thing isn't being like you know videotaped or ever shown anywhere. <laughs> my, whatever uh -huh. tiny pathetic future I have is going to be... <laughs> you got that bad. right. Yeah, oh, you're, you're so funny, funny man. I can't think of any Never Trumpers I despise, other than maybe Rick Wilson. Rick Wilson might be the one of the one who comes close to this guy, but this guy's always been the worst for me. You can make a case that America has become has been great because every... every I think John Adams said this at the beginning, right? Basically, if you're in a free society, a capitalist society, society after two, three, four generations of hard work, everyone becomes kind of decadent, lazy, spoiled, whatever. And then you luckily, you have these waves of people coming in from Italy and Ireland and Russia and now Mexico who really want to work hard and really want to succeed and really want their kids to live better lives than them and aren't sort of clipping coupons or hoping that they can hang on. And meanwhile, you know, we grew up as spoiled kids and so forth. So in that respect, I don't know why this moment is that different from the early 20th century or we, the we mid 19th give century. Somebody else a chance to ask a question. I, at this, I, point. <laughs> the, the, this was at an event for the American Enterprise Institute, oh, which course, is like the course. predominant neocon think tank in Washington, D.C. There's so much there. I mean, first off, luckily we have people coming in. Luckily we have hordes of immigrants pouring into the country. And again, this is the thing. I, I think we have said this on the show before, but it needs to be said again and again and again. You cannot compare the post 1965 wave of immigration 
to the immigration of this country when it was first founded and during the Civil War. One of the key reasons, of course, being that back in the days of the Civil War and when those immigrants came in, all the Irish and Italian immigrants or whatever, there was no welfare state. The right. only welfare you got is if you joined in the military and then you could get, you know, veterans benefits. You had to come here and work and earn everything you had. You had to get a job. You had to start a business, whatever. You had to become a blacksmith, whatever. You had to work for a living in America. You were not given handouts. These immigrants who are coming here now are flooding the border in Biden campaign t-shirts are not coming here because they believe in a better believe in the ideas of America. They are coming because Biden and the Democrats are offering them free stuff. We will give you free education, free healthcare, we'll give you your own house, we'll give it all to you on the back of the American taxpayers. It's that simple. But the the idea that every three or four generations you need to replace, you need to replenish the American workforce with new Americans, with foreigners, it's just it shows that he doesn't see the United States as a country. I mean, can you imagine if any other country talked or thought like that? Imagine Germany. They think, okay, yeah, every every three or four years our country becomes decadent and Germans become lazy. So every three or four years we need to replace the German people with new with new people who are uh, going to work hard. Again, reduce that to a micro level. Imagine if a family, you know, if a family that's really rich, that's well off, starts becoming decadent. Like the kids, they start going to parties and doing drugs or whatever, and they're misbehaving and they're not going to school or whatever. And the parents look at that and think, oh, well, our kids are becoming decadent and privileged after all the last few generations built of this wealth. Clearly, we need to just replace our kids. Like, that, that it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. Well, you, would oh. be, you would be a, an extreme sociopath if you – or not an extreme sociopath. You'd be a psychopath if you did that. But it shows that people like Bill Crystal genuinely hate Americans. They genuinely – it's not just that they don't love Americans. They genuinely hate Americans. The disdain and the mockery with which he refers to the white working class is just – Well, and the thing is if, if you have a problem with people who are being, becoming lazy and spoiled is you make them work. Like if a person is becoming if – a, if a person – think about it. If a person just sits around and eats potato chips and drinks Coke all day and doesn't go and get a job. I mean that's just let's just imagine a stereotypical person in middle America who's – 18, 19, 20 years old, he's not going to college, he's not getting a job, he just wants to sit around the couch, maybe he works six hours a week, he just collects coupons or whatever, he just does the bare minimum. Okay, well, if he's making it and he's happy like that, why do you care? Like, What's it to you? And if he isn't making it like that, he's going to go get a job. And one of the reasons why he's probably making it like that is because he's living off welfare. The government is taking care of him. You want people to go to work? Okay, cut the welfare benefits. Let's have welfare reform. Let's stop letting people live off the dole. But the thing is, people like Crystal really aren't that much different from the the uh, thought leaders in the modern Democratic Party, people like Joe Biden. They want our country to import people who are going to work hard for low wages that are better than what they can get back home. And these middle America people who – you know, grew up spoiled. Yeah, their parents, they worked comfy union jobs. They were able to make $25, $30 an hour working 40 hours a week. So they were able to provide a good life for their kids. Maybe their kids are spoiled. I'm not saying there aren't a lot of them who aren't spoiled. Rather than making sure that we limit immigration so that if employers want workers, they have to appeal to these people and raise their wages to a level that will get these people off their butt and get them to the job site. Rather than doing that, they would rather put these people on welfare, just give them enough money to keep them happy. You know, like here, here, here's some, here's some, uh, here's some narcotics. You know, here, take some pills. Here's some porn. Like, just 
whatever. Just don't cause too much trouble. We'll we'll give you a we'll give you a stimulus check every now and then. So you'll give we'll we'll pretend like you're disabled on you're disabled just because you're overweight. And you don't want to get up and go work. We'll just pretend like you're disabled and give you a disability check. Meanwhile, we'll import low income. Uh, we'll import low wage workers from other countries to do the grunt work. That's essentially what they want, and that's what Bill Crystal has suggested. So basically, let's just put American citizens on the dole until they die off. And then we'll have these new Americans, and then after three or four generations, these new Americans' descendants will become lazy as well. We'll put them on the dole, let them die off, and then we'll bring in new Americans. Just keep replenishing the American workforce. It shows they don't see the United States as a country. America is just an economic engine. It's just an um, what's what do you, America is just an economic opportunity zone. They basically view America like they view Singapore. It's a place for people around the world to come and make money and basically squeeze the fat all out of it and then leave or die off. And that's why it's incumbent upon us to push back against this narrative and remind people, no, America is a nation. It has a history. It has a culture. It has an identity. It has an ancestry, not just ideological, not just our values, which you can trace back, of course, throughout the great history of Western civilization as a whole. But it has founding fathers, and we have people here who are descended from those founding fathers. This is not just some zone to be refilled with completely new people every couple of generations because, oh, we got to get the debt to GDP ratio back in check or whatever. I need this garbage fiscal conservative nonsense. If it's good for the economy, then it's good for everybody. No, put the nation first, America first, not capitalism first. That is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for listening. We, once again, are available on every podcast platform. You can also find us on all the major alternative social media sites, Gab, Minds, BitChute, and Rumble. You can see the full list of websites where you can follow all of our content and the list of podcast platforms at righttakepodcast.com slash contact. And be sure to like our content on all the social media platforms. Share our posts on Facebook. Give us a like on YouTube. And be sure to share all of our content with friends and family and anyone else that you think may need a good red pill in their life. We've got some really exciting stuff coming up for you guys in the next few weeks. So be sure to stay tuned for all of that. And we will talk to you next week.